When it comes to the cyber incidents, cyber threats, I always say cyber go very closely together with information operations and mis disinformation. Manipulating to media is one of the biggest and scariest tools that I'm known. We really need to start teaching our kids since already early in high school how to read the media, how to read the news and how do you know again what's right and what's wrong and how to do it like super critically. Media is playing a massive role here. The enemy wants us to have as much as confusion in the society as possible. Welcome to the Mr. Rat Show, where I talk to the most interesting global personalities about the future of humanity. Today, beautiful people, I have the pleasure to be hosting Annette Numa. Annette serves as a cyber defense policy advisor for the Estonian Ministry of Defense. I listened to one of her talks at JITEC, which is this huge startup tech event. And since then, I wanted to learn more about how she and the team around here build cyber policies that prevent a highly digitalized country like Estonia get attacked in the cyberspace. So Annette, welcome. Happy to have you here. I'm also happy to join and it was great meeting you back in Dubai. Thank you. So I would love to start by, by you telling us how you got here. How did you become a cyber defense advisor for the Estonian government? Maybe a little bit of your background in political science and so on. So I've been very lucky to live abroad a couple of times in my life. So I stayed in Slovenia for my bachelor's studies and came back home here and then moved to France for my, for my master's studies. I stayed in Lyon. But if you live in a country where maybe technology is not so advanced as it was back in, in France when I had to do everything on paper again, as in Estonia, we have been doing things online already since early 90s. And yes, early 90s, meaning that we already started the entire digitalization process back in, in uh, 1994. And then I moved to a country where everybody asked me to start all my documentation and everything on paper. It didn't take too much time, I would say, that I just get very, I just got very annoyed of all of these things that I needed to do back in paper. And when I finished my studies, it was very clear for me that I want to return back home and start promoting what we do in Estonia based on technology so that also the other countries, both in the EU and also all around the world, could, could benefit what we have learned from, from these last 30 years using technology. And then I returned back home after my master's studies in France and somehow I got so lucky that I started working at the ES30 Briefing Center and I was there as the digital advisor for the transformation process itself for three years. So I was promoting the Estonian success in using technology. For the last three years, going around the world, speaking to policymakers, presidents, prime ministers, private sector people. And, and yeah, so in, in three years, I, I tried to also find my own focus because, um, I, I realized very quickly that, um, uh, whenever we talk about like using technology, you can't use like, or you can't talk about using technology in the government sector without talking about the security. Because when it comes to the national security of Estonia, everything depends on the cyberspace. Then I started just reading and investigating much more about the cyber policies. And I found my way to the uh, Ministry of Defense and I've been working here almost a year. And, and uh, my position is especially focusing on the international relations. So I'm making sure that Estonia has enough friends in cyberspace and so that everybody could learn again from our experience of defending Estonia 
in cyberspace already since the year of 2007, when we faced the biggest cyber incidents. And yeah, so, so this is pretty much how I got here. This was just a short story. And I feel very passionate about, especially in the topic of uh, cybersecurity, because this really influences everybody's life, I would say. And if I've been talking to my, to my friends, maybe that are not so tech savvy. So if you say that you work in the cybersecurity field, like most of the people would just get very scared and okay, what's that, what you do? But it actually influences each one of us here. And especially when we think about the impact that came from COVID times. Or also besides this, and now the war in Ukraine, we are more and more dependent on the security also in cyberspace. It's interesting that you touched the topic of when talking to friends, they don't understand or they feel scared about the word of cybersecurity or cyber attack, cyber defense. I wanted to know from your side, how would you define cyber defense or cybersecurity? And why do you think we should all care about it? Is it only hacking data? Because when I think my friends are maybe part of the audience that are listening to this podcast today, when they hear about cyber defense or cybersecurity, maybe they immediately think about some computer getting hacked or something. Wanted to hear from you, what exactly is cyber defense, cybersecurity? There's the influence to each one of us here. And when I have had to explain this to you, maybe people that are, again, not so experienced in the field, I've been always saying it really does influence each one of us. So when you when you think about waking up in the morning, the first thing that you do is turning on your lights or when we think about like just turning on your phone to check what time is it or just you have your alarm clock going on. When there would be like a massive incident against the infrastructure, you wouldn't have electricity at home or you can't boil yourself even water when there is no electricity or it would be very cold in your apartment. So it like influences everybody's life when there is a massive incident. I, and I would say the war in Ukraine right now really does reflect this. So already back in 2015, uh, when uh, Russia attacked uh, uh, also Ukraine in, in cyberspace, uh, there were like major problems also that they were kind of switching off one of the city with more than 100,000 inhabitants there from the electricity. It was a very cold winter time. So this again shows you perfectly here that it can influence the way we live. And uh, and it's just not also very typical computer hacks, but around 80% of the cyber incidents happen because people have weak passwords. We have heard the stories and, and again, going just like what every single person should care about is their own like social media. We're using currently Twitter here. I mean, there has been massive incidents also on, on social media platforms such as Facebook or Instagram where the accounts have been taken over. I think everybody should care about this because it's your private conversations. It's about your private data, your pictures, your videos. It's so much like how we live. I would say that our entire life is based currently on our phones and the different kind of devices that we use. So, so that's why I feel like this is why we should care. And and what we do in the, in the defense sector is, of course, making sure that we wouldn't face any incidents. So also the prevention side, so that we need to build our resilience here, just again, making sure that our technology is advanced enough so that we would know how to respond to the incidents or again, like I said, would be able to prevent them to happen. I mean, there is two different also concepts, like when we think about like the cyber security itself, it's a little larger than cyber defense, meaning that it's mostly from the military perspective, but also more and more civil sector. We need to, of course, also defend our critical infrastructure providers in this in the cyber domain as well. So 
it's a very large topic that it's very hard to define. But, but I've been always just explaining to my friends that it's about protecting your life as a whole. We are so dependent on, on what technology offers, but also besides just providing us different kind of opportunities, it also provides us a massive or not provides, but also we are facing massive amount of, of threats. And, and I would say it's just lessons that we need to learn that also in cyberspace. For me, it is clear that we're moving towards a more digitalized world. We are moving from, a, from an internet where we create content and share it. But then that content is owned by centralized entities, maybe in a centralized server. Let's say you, you were talking about Instagram or Twitter, where we're speaking today. So that internet era seems to be a thing of the past that we're moving towards an internet era where we also create and share content, but now we also own it. So now we have digital assets. People talk about NFTs and it seems to me that the trend is that we're moving from a centralized to a decentralized kind of internet. And at our pool of assets become more and more digital. So the things that we own tend to be online or digitalized. What do you think is the role of the government when it comes to protecting those assets? How can the government intervene or protect without compromising the privacy of its citizens? I fully agree with you that this is becoming more and more essential and an important topic to you to tackle. I feel like just coming from the European Union, Europe really has to define the values. How do we protect information of the citizens? And of course, how do we raise the awareness so that people would know who owns their information and what kind of rights do they have when they use different applications? So when it comes to, for example, just going a little bit more broad here, when it really comes to using different applications on the phone and everything in order to prepare for like people not suffering any kind of, again, the, either the incidents or just again, like who owns their data or who is like either misusing this data or just using for maybe not so good purpose here. So I, I feel like what we can do here is also shape the legal, the legal frameworks for this. And this is why also I'm working here in the MOD, mostly as my position is like I'm a policy advisor. So that we need to shape these kind of policies so that the information of our citizens, both here in Estonia and also just the European Union in a larger scale, would be protected. And, and I feel like Europe is like a forerunner in terms of this, so that the big tech companies wouldn't, again, misuse information for their own good. Like, uh, for their own good and just gaining money for, for the information that they store. Again, a legal framework there has a lot to do and different kind of policies. But also besides this, people really need to be aware. And that's just why also, for example, like in Estonia, we spend a lot of time on, on raising this awareness and, and making sure that people really do know their rights. And of course, also consequences when they use some kind of applications or just like how they provide their data to you, different online portals. So both these things, like I said, the policy, the legal frameworks, and then the awareness should be just going hand in hand. When you look at countries, and I know Estonia is one of the leaders in digitalizing its processes, its bureaucracy, uh, its defense in this case. When you look at other countries, when you speak to other governors in different parts of the world, what do you think need to look up to when looking at 
Estonian case, what do you think are the most important things in, in terms of cyber defense when building a strategy as a country? Besides the legal, you talked about the legal. What else do you think is important? I think Estonia is a forerunner also because we do have an experience and I've been also now reflecting this to you, like the Ukraine because they have been under a cyber war since the year 2015 already. So what we do have that plenty of other countries maybe don't is the experience in really facing a massive amount of threats in cyberspace against the nation. We were one of the first nations that were attacked in 2007. What we have been shaping, especially in cyberspace, is that we do have a great cyber governance. And, and maybe this concept is not very well known for most of the people thinking about, okay, what's the cyber governance and why this is important. But when it comes to facing different incidents, and if I may compare these to entire like the military domain, as when one country attacks the other country also in the physical space, you need to know this kind of chain of who is making decisions and who is responsible for which part. So that entire chain would be working like perfectly and efficiently. This is what Estonia really has been experiencing and just playing through these scenarios so that we know exactly like which ministry, which institution is responsible for which part. So this chain is working very effect effect effectively. And and also we've been focusing so much on the decentralized or decentralization of the information so that we have just wider the risk in that way. We do not store any of our data centrally in, in one single like institu uh, institution or like a database itself, but we have divided this to a large number of different institutions in Estonia, both public and private, so that it wouldn't be just one single database, but it's, it's divided in a way. And of course, also we were the first country who started using blockchain on a national level. So, so cybersecurity also has a lot to do with the way you store your information or what kind of technology you use besides these other things, like I said, like just the response for the incidents or just the legal framework. So it's how you use the technology and how securely you have built the entire infrastructure of uh, technology perspective as well. So I would say this side, and, and of course, also we have like endless exercises happening all the time. So next week, Estonia is hosting a NATO cyber coalition exercise physically here in, in Tallinn, which is one of the largest NATO exercises. So like nonstop, we have been playing to with different kind of scenarios, the worst case scenarios that could happen and they have happened. So first of all, again, We've got our lessons from there, what to do better. But of course, also with our allies, we play through different cases, scenarios so that we will be ready for the next venture happening. Of course, I cannot go into the details what is the exact defense policy in cyberspace because this is obviously more classified information. But, but of course, we've been great partners for our friends and allies, uh, both in the EU and in, in, in NATO as well. So if I would just sum it up, like <laughs> why... Different countries should be listening to Estonians because we, we do have a massive amount of experience because uh, Russia is making sure that we have this kind of daily exercises almost, almost every day. So they're always touching if the door is open or they can get things somewhere. And if you do these things all the time, then, then you just get very experienced in that field. Annette, you touch a very interesting topic that is a combination of the cybersecurity with the offline, more traditional security. And you talked about this meeting that NATO is having in Tallinn, talked about preparing for maybe bad worst-case scenarios. I wonder what could a worst-case scenario be 
I'm thinking if there is a, a crash of the satellite and then all of a sudden we don't have internet connection anymore. That sounds pretty bad to me. So uh, how do you, how does a country or a country like Estonia or a, a block of countries like Europe make sure that this doesn't happen? I know it's not maybe a simple answer, but what's your take on this? I think it's, again, if I may just bring it out, one of the examples what happened in Ukraine since the start of the war. Do you think that uh, Ukraine would be still connected? to the world or to the internet when they wouldn't have the satellites and the uh, Starlink system. They wouldn't because most of their usual methods of connecting to the internet are, are down. And obviously Russia was using that method in order to really cut Ukraine off from the usual networks. Luckily, we had if another option so that they were able to also connect uh, through the satellite methods. So I, I've been attending also, just very recently, I was attending a conference about like the uh, space security, where we also talked about the same thing. Just think about also like from the military perspective, if there wouldn't be any kind of methods to communicate through the satellites, which is the most secure way of communicating between different kind of military people. So they wouldn't be able to send any information to each other. They wouldn't be able to use the GPS. So it can do a massive chaos in, in just like everyday life to not just the war side, but also here. So it is a massive impact that it could have to your life. So just thinking about, again, the worst case scenarios, like I brought it up before, when there is a loss of electricity. So we know that Russia is targeting, especially these sectors that have the biggest impact on people's life, and especially the critical infrastructure providers. We, they have been also threatening, and now as winter is coming to Estonia, or it is, has arrived already, they have really threatened the energy sector itself. So, I mean, it can really do a massive influence. And there has been cases for, I don't know if I can name that in English, that this institution that are providing us a clean water. So if there is an attack against something like this, we can't even drink water or go have a shower. Like a water supplier exactly. in, a, in the yeah, other country. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So imagine like the water suppliers again the energy suppliers like all of that side all these things that we're used to do like every day just by just from waking up they would be influenced and we are currently having a chat here over like twitter when all the social media platforms would be down and uh, russia has been also targeting estonia with heaters attacks to take down our like media platforms because media is of course also playing a massive role here we wouldn't be aware of the news what's happening currently and obviously when it comes to the goal or the purpose different cyber attacks then the enemy wants us to have as much as confusion in the society as possible and that's why they are especially targeting the most vulnerable sectors so that it would influence each one of us here in the society and then and, and there would be a massive massive amount of confusion so this is the goal and and when i would just pick this worst case scenario then it's bringing bringing a very big confusion in the society that's why we need to work on this that these incidents wouldn't happen and i'm happy to see that also under the mod we provide the cyber ranges so that we can again bait some of the solutions of our critical infrastructure providers and try to find the weakest links there and then they can improve the system or again play the, uh, play, play through these scenarios when they would be a red team attacking the system like how to protect yourself how to protect yourself from the enemy so this is what we do uh, every day <laughs> and support both the public and private sector institutions that are hiding in cyberspace all the time. Yeah, so I don't even want to think about what would happen when these uh, worst case scenarios would actually come to. And like I said, 
in Ukraine, we have seen this happening before, but they have been more successful now since since that this year. But, but still, we don't know if there could be anything still coming. Definitely. I think that when talking about more subtle, indirect ways of cyber attacking a society or a group of countries or territory, it is what you said, very important to, to pay attention at media at what maybe media in X or Y country are talking about. So just to give you an example, when you see a great divide, a strong, I would say unhealthy polarization in opinions in the West about topics such as abortion, gender rights, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the COVID vaccines. More lately, also the One Love initiative of some players in the World Cup. Are all these topics, in a way, a scope of cybersecurity? And, and I'm not trying to uh, take a position here on, on X or Y. I'm just wondering how important is to the cybersecurity of a country or a block of countries like the European Union to maintain a, in a way, fake news out, but at the same time, make sure that you're not... Um, you know, suppressing information. The media is actually, I'm very glad to say that, not gladly to say that, but I have to admit that I'm saying this, that they are playing one of the biggest roles in Channel One. And when we see, so when it comes to the cyber incidents or just the cyber threats, I always say cyber go very closely together with all the other hybrid threats. So when I talk about like the hybrid threats and when a country attacks the other country or again, even the media side in cyberspace, then it always goes together with the information operations and missing disinformation. So these, do, these things are not even possible to separate anymore or it's just that they always use this method so that when they use cyber or just like the way they communicate the cyber incidents. So also just to brag about that they were successful with something, but also I would say the other example from that perspective would be to think about what happened like the cyber incidents against Russia, so the other way around. So for their media, like the TV and so on. So some of the hackers were successful enough to send a message what was happening actually in Ukraine to the Russian national TV. So media and, and TVs and the newspapers and social media platforms and so on are the ones that are providing us a very good opportunity to send that information. And by saying a good opportunity, it can also be used very negatively. So we have have to be very careful and this is why also lately especially since february this year we've been focusing more on helping the media outlets and so they're making sure that they wouldn't be suffering under any of these incidents because it can do much more of a harm and like i said before when it comes to the providing this confusion in the society then media is the I would say the easiest sector to use this. So, so, so definitely there is there is a lot happening there and we've been tackling and trying to support them as, as much as it's possible. So definitely it is playing more more essential role that it has ever done before. And when Estonia was attacked now in August this year in cyberspace, which was one of the largest cyber incidents that happened since 2007. So it was quite the same case as well. So that we were, so we were like facing this mess and disinformation campaigns 
on different kind of social media so that they were taking just pictures of our state information portals were actually just like the technical fix that they were doing. And then the Russian hackers said that they were super successful in attacking Estonian cyberspace and everything is down and nothing is working. And the entire Estonian society was impacted by Russian hackers, which wasn't true. So, so there is a colleague of mine who said once in, in one of the panels that when it comes to when it comes to the cyberspace, it is very hard to define like who is actually behind of the attack. And there is so many different groups of hackers who are just very happy to brag that they have been successful and they managed to influence one or the other country. Yeah. It's very easy to just brag about things that you were successful. Yeah, uh, yeah, I understand. There's definitely a lot of confusion in the space. I can imagine that by being inside of the space, uh, being part of the policymakers of cyber defense of a country, you see all kinds of things and all kinds of situations of people claiming that they did X or Y cyber attack, but in reality, it's hard to pin down who actually did it. But when you look at this environment from the outside as a, as a person that has nothing to do with the space, with the cybersecurity space and has no connection whatsoever with the policymakers, it's even more confusing because you hear X in this news channel, Y on this news channel, then you go to Twitter and the person that you follow talks about that same topic, but from a different perspective, then you go to Instagram or watch a YouTube video and then there's another opinion. So it's, it's very difficult to understand what's right or who is right or not right actually, but who has the correct information and who to trust. Do you think there is a responsibility of the people of the regular citizen to consume media in a way that they understand that there are different forces behind different messages or rhetorics trying to push different agendas. Maybe some are good for a bunch of people and some are not, but are they, but in general, they're trying to influence the stand of the population on X or Y topic. How much of a responsibility do individuals like me or regular persons have when it comes to um, understanding what is misinformation? or what is not. Yeah, so if I could change something or just provide like an idea what to do differently is that we need to start teaching our kids since already early in high school how to read the media, how to read the news and how do you know again what's right and what's wrong and how to do it like super critically because it, it's the same as for me. It was, I think I would say since the start of like COVID crisis, I have been changing my way of like how do I consume media like very differently now. So I'm only focusing and reading the news from the Estonian, like the national broadcast and just this kind of news that I know that don't have any kind of emotions and these news don't want to me to just think in a way that the person who was writing the article wants to, but gives me a chance to decide based on the facts what's true and what's not so that I can be a better, like, how do I consume this information? The influence for this, especially why people write articles is, again, usually with the goal of making you to to think in a specific way that, uh, like I said, the writer wants you to. And and we're, like, really manipulating with the information that we're providing to people, especially, like you also brought it out, like the information that we use, read on Twitter, on, on, on different other social media platforms. There is more and more, like, the far institutions, political parties, hard to include 
it's even like worse. I mean, like just having conversations and fighting with my, not fighting, but really arguing with my friends, even that I don't that have this very critical way of thinking in terms of they sent me a video or, or an article say, you see, actually this person was like wrong and they're trying to show me what the other portals are talking about the same like case or just what we discussed. So you can cover the same event in a very, very different way. And it's nothing that just new that came from like media, but even how do we cover history in history lessons? If you would say that, let's say the World War One, if you would go to the history lesson here in, in Estonia and you would go, let's say to US or you would go to Russia, they're also covering the same events that happen in a very different way. And this is exactly what happens in, in media with, with things that happen today. So yeah, if I could provide like one more a course or lesson to the high school, then it would be very how to consume media in a better way. But our and uh, some of our media platforms were testing again the COVID times when the information of COVID was so different in media platforms. They started taking this news that were spread in some of the newspapers and they were doing the fact check, controlling what the person who wrote the article wanted to say, if that was correct or no and you can actually do this kind of fact check very easily they were just providing the facts and let everybody to decide whether to trust this information or no and this is what i've been trying to do as well so when i read something then i'm like okay i see that i have now these emotions why do i have these emotions and then doing a bit little bit larger background check off of the thing that i was reading like manipulating to media is one of the biggest and scariest tools that i've known and, and we really need to, these people to be smarter, more critical, whatever they consume. Absolutely. I think education, like we point out, is definitely a big contributor here on whether people, as they grow up or we grow up or we evolve as humans in general, we need to be more and more aware that there's forces in the right and the left that are trying to convince us. In the end, we're all humans. I believe we all should be driven by empathy and love. I wanted to know a bit more about your opinion on the role of big, large tech corporations in the cyber defense space. So how do you think, how important do you think is for you as a country, as Estonia, as a leader in the European bloc of countries to create alliances with software tech companies? or hardware manufacturers. I'm thinking in the U.S., for example, the U.S. military banned, you know, I have a, I have a drone. Yeah. The drone, the, the brand of the drone, DJI is a brand. It's, it's, a, it's a manufacturer from China. They manufacture drones and other sorts of uh, artifacts. And they're very good when you compare DJI with other, um, consumer level drones, they are affordable and they are high quality. That was my opinion. Then I read in the newspaper that actually the U.S. banned the DJI drones that were coming from China because of military reasons. And, uh, and this has happened also with other topics. So you have the semi semiconductors topic, there's this arm wrestling battle between China and the West regarding the semiconductors for those that maybe don't know what a semiconductor is, it's a specialized piece of technology that is essential to everything that is around you. Basically, your phones have semiconductors, the computers have them, the refrigerators have semiconductors, even cars nowadays use semiconductors. And there's a big company here in Europe called ASML that is essential for building these semiconductors. And so 
all of a sudden, I'm a user of DJI, the drone company from China. And then I read in the newspaper that Biden or the US encouraged companies like ASML to stop serving the Chinese with this semiconductor services or technology because of national security reasons, because the Chinese are, and I quote, developing weapons and surveillance technology with it. So how important it is for Europe, Estonia, or a country in general to have a good relationship or alliance with hardware manufacturers. And our companies, and I'm an entrepreneur, I stand for a economy that allows the private sector to flourish. But it becomes at some point, it seems to me that at some point, when you build technology that has such a great reach, like drones or semiconductors, it, your company becomes a, almost like a macro political agent without knowing. So I guess my question goes again into, I'm trying to understand how, what's the role of a, of a cyber defense team in a country when it comes to forming alliances with software tech companies or how hardware manufacturers. It has become more and more essential how is the relationship to, like built and defined. And when I just can very brief, briefly say about this, that the, some of the biggest like incidents that also happen in the state sector are caused because of some kind of security vulnerabilities of tech company. So obviously the state is not able to do everything by themselves. So they're not in a the technology experts like in, in any of the states and especially also the software uh, or the hardware that we just use is again bought by just kind of we, we work together with different private institutions and this is why it is extremely important that our partners would be trustworthy and then I would turn again back to the policy side and I'm very happy that EU commission is coming out now very soon with a new policy that is also defining this kind of security levels that different institutions have in order to work with them. So we want to be 100% sure that all these big techs that we work with have like high enough security standards so that we can really work with them. Because brought it out especially the Chinese influence and versus the West, I do trust our security institutions because they have enough information that maybe not the public has, but we've been trying to also communicate this to the public because when we discover some kind of security weaknesses of a system or of a company, then I highly also recommend not to work with any of these companies because not everybody are good people and not everybody come with, with a good like this kind of goals in life. So we have seen plenty of just false incidents and things going wrong because because of a weakness in, in some other countries like security, not sorry, country like the institutions, security systems. So that's why it's our aim to make sure that again, the policies would be shaping the security standards of each company that we want to work with. So of course, like when it comes to private sector and just the private sector doing collaboration between each other, we cannot really just influence this from our side that much. 
But yeah, but when it comes to the state working with private sector, then these things have to be very clear because we are trusting, again, our future and our work to somebody else's hands. And before doing this, we need to make sure that we can sleep peacefully and knowing that everything is secure and so So we've been very closely also working with, the, with these things. And there are also already a couple of different companies that we don't allow any public institution to work with because of the risks that we have discovered. And, and we are advising each and every institution in a state of the background of these companies. This is just a massive challenge that we're going to face even like much much bigger in the future. Yeah, that, that's an important point because I think when people think of, you know, wars and uh, conflicts between countries, they all maybe think about what happened in the last 300 years with the different, the changing world orders, you know, we had the Spanish empire at some point, the Dutch empire. And so all these physical borders of countries change quite a lot. And that's what people maybe think of when they think of a war. But nowadays the war is being held online as well. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you in, of course. But do you think this cyber war or war online will end the fight for physical borders in a way or for land? Or do you think it will just accelerate it as right now, maybe going into war with someone else can be done from a room with maybe with a couple of computers remotely? And I'm, of course, exaggerating. I know it's more complex than this, but do you think cyber world will accelerate the war within countries, between countries in general or, or not? I think we've been discussing this a lot, like also, I would say, when we, you would have asked me this question five years ago, I would have said just something differently than I do today. So also when the war in Ukraine started, it was a massive shock to the rest of the world that actually a country can come with their weapons and tanks to, to another country, like physically and not just cyber. So this is definitely, this proved us that, that there is, there are still sadly countries that do it in a in old ways, they go and fight and actually use their army. So I don't think it's going to change. But the role of cybersecurity there is that cyber is just defining how well things go in the physical space. Because what we see again, and cyber also influences a lot like what kind of new technologies do we use? And we see that Ukraine countries in the West have been giving Ukraine also way more new technologies. I don't know, like just talking about like the different vehicles that are much more modern or just drones or just tracking information differently. Again, like I said before, the Starlink so that they can still communicate to each other. So cyber is is just helping and it's one part of methods, uh, like just one of the methods uh, in order to attack the other nation. But having cyber methods, it's obviously much cheaper and maybe easier method to influence another country. But, but the Ukrainian war really proved us that sadly, this is not going to end the war in the physical space. It's still happening and, and we're going to see this happening. Yeah, if I compare like the World War Two or something like this, then cyber wasn't playing a role like this that it is today that, that, that these components that were there also a very long time ago are still there just technology has advanced this is why also we see a more role coming from from the cyberspace so yeah it's not going to shape the entire like uh, conflicts that agenda but it just becomes a part of it. 
Yeah, I understand. And, and it's probably, it's, it's very much more understandable from my side that when you say that cyber defense or cyber security is just a part of the whole thing. And it is very clear with your example of Starlink that providing cyber aid, cyber security aid to a country like Ukraine is just a little part of the total security aid that a country in war can get from its allies. But talking about components of cyber security, I found it super interesting when you talked about the digitalization of the genome. And this is my last question. I want to wrap up with this. Nicolas, if you're still there, I'll definitely give you the mic for a minute or so after this question. Happy to do that. But going back to my question, when we met in Dubai, you were talking about the digitalization of the genome of Estonians. Mm -hmm. There's a thing called the Estonian Biobank, and I believe it's about taking the DNA of some of the citizens of Estonia and putting them on a database. And if I'm not wrong, you do that to analyze why people have different disease risks and why some medicines maybe affect them differently. So how is this important or related to cyber defense of the cyber defense strategy of a country like Estonia, maybe you can build up on this uh, Estonian biobank a little bit more to try to understand how this all fits together. I would first of all start with just saying that when it comes to what kind of information do we need to protect its citizens' data? And if I may ask, if I would be in the same room with people that are listening to us right now, what is the most sensitive data that you can have about the other person? It's obviously your medical data. And this is why it is extremely important to us to really have the very secure cyberspace so that we would be able to protect people's like such as sensitive data, like, like the genome data is. So we, we've been using blockchain, for example, in storing our medical information for a long time already, and especially also having everything decentralized when it comes to storing the medical data so that it wouldn't be just in one central, like the database for the medical information, but it would be divided by different hospitals. So again, in order to make sure that uh, this information would be safe. But so yeah, just in general aside, the only just connection there would be uh, to make sure that we protect the information that really matters to people. And if you think about the, in general, like the medical data, if there would be an attack against the medical systems of Estonia and somebody would be able to delete or like edit information about people's blood types or what they're allergic to, it can influence somebody's life. If you if an accident happens with you and the system says that your blood type is like A plus uh, or or something like this, and this is actually not correct, and you would get the wrong blood to your body, then obviously you might die. So this is why uh, the medical data is one of the one of the most protected information that we have of our people. But why do we collect this information? Of course, to analyze the diseases and then just to understand a little bit better what our people are suffering in. But besides this, also provide people more awareness of their medical conditions because there there is a saying around like 50% of our sicknesses depend on our genes and 50% of the environment. 
And if you are already aware, like way before that, that you might be suffering in, in, in this kind of health diseases in the future, then you can change the environment in order to avoid these diseases to really go uh, serious, become serious. So this is one of the reasons why do we provide this information so that people would be smarter with their bodies and mental health or anything. And of course, also for the states in the future, hopefully it provides us a massive amount of information and data so that we can use this for like also making decisions in the political space so that people would be working out enough and eating healthy enough and we can do prevention. So uh, I, I would say maybe just to like to sum it up and say why it is important in general like to collect information and data and do it smartly is because this provides us an actual information that we can use in order to make decisions for. As I've been always saying like when you're a decision maker, you just can't make a decision based on the mood. What do you just guess what would be the right thing to do? But as we use technology and information so that we can make a whole of our decisions be based on the actual information that we have been collecting. So that will be my short answer. Yeah, absolutely. And I, Nicolas, if you're still there, let me know because I'm inviting you to speak, but I don't know if you're getting the invitation. In any ways, I think it's very important what you say, and it's that medical data is critical data that needs to be cured with the most rigorous methodology as possible. I do believe that this needs to be hand in hand with the population trusting the government. And I see, I have a hard time imagining, I come from South America. I have a hard time imagining my fellow South Americans trusting the government. It is obvious that the corruption levels of Estonia compared to many countries in South America are just minimum. So yeah, I understand and I completely agree with you that medical data is definitely better maybe managed by a government that is trusted by people that maybe has very low levels of corruption or to none. But when it comes to other countries, maybe the majority of the countries in the world, I see it hard to believe that people will just be okay with it. Or if they are okay with it, hard to believe that it's not going to be misused. So I think I see there a big challenge in other countries, not specifically in Europe. But let me ask Nicolas if he wants to go ahead. I think you already accepted the invite. Nicolas, you want to move forward? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, please go ahead. Fantastic. So thank you very much, Mr. Rat. I was born and raised in South America as well. So I fully understand what you just meant. And many thanks, especially to Annette. This is all super, super interesting. So Estonia has been making massive steps forward in digitalization in the last decade. And today has one of the most developed e-governments in the EU. Now we are all interested in politics and we know that sometimes the link between technology and politics can be a bit tricky. You talked about uh, cyber attacks. I would like to ask for another aspect, which is technology and democracy. Specifically, the electronic vote in Estonia has been adopted, sorry, in northern Estonia, but it's been adopted and dismissed in a number of countries, especially in Europe, for instance, the Netherlands or Italy. But Estonia has i-voting, which is not exactly the same, if I'm not wrong. So, uh, Annette, could you please dive a little bit on how is this experience in Estonia? Do you consider i-voting safe? So many thanks and I keep on listening. Thank you very much for the question. And and I have to say that i-voting is one of my favorite topics to talk about because 
as I said, I'd lived abroad many times and I was still able to, I was still able to just shape the Estonian politics by even being far away, not having to go to any of the embassies. So the reason why we started providing this, obviously, was that there is a lot of Estonians that live abroad, but very little uh, embassies that we have. And if you live in a country where there is no embassy, then it, there has to be a method that you can still be connected and still vote. And, and and of course, as everything was based online, we wanted to make like also voting online. And this has been now happening for like many years already. And around 50%, so meaning that half of our population is already using the electronic voting. And if you talked about like how security is and why so many other countries have failed in this or doing this differently. So even like the US is saying that they have voting, which is actually not true. <laughs> and I know that also there has been like Canada, for example, they were saying that they have iVoting. So they actually, what they did was that you could write like a just online application and say that you would want the government send you a password back home and, and then you could go online and just vote with this, which is not secure at all. But in order to really make the iVoting happening, then the only option or the secure option there to make this possible used to have an electronic identity card. We have had this already again for almost, I think it's even more than 20 years now. The electronic identity cards with like the information of people have to be like first in place there because the electronic identity card is being used when we vote. So you would identify yourself. So there is no such thing as, as just like the usual username or a password that you need to provide, but there is these two very secure numbers that are your electronic identity card. And if you need to insert that, then you just provide your security in there. What we also do besides this is like around a few months the election happened, we also have the tests and exercises or just we use the hackers to test the vulnerabilities of the iVoting system so that we also make sure that it is safe to be used. So. Since we, we started using iVoting application, there hasn't been any of the incidents. So I can say that it, it must be secure. And like I said, so we have a lot of tec technicians that are making sure, trying to attack the by themselves. So to just be sure that, that they wouldn't find any of the weaknesses in the system. And of course, we do have, also have a backup plan. So if, if there would be even like a single vote that would be compromised, then we call these elections fail. And then because the iVoting happens, there is like four days between the iVoting ends and then the actual election day happens so that we also have time to ask people to come physically to the embassy or then to the polling stations. So we do have that backup plan, but luckily it has never been used before. So yeah, we've been putting a lot of efforts in order to build the massive resilience of the iVoting system, but it wouldn't be possible if it wouldn't have just infrastructure there or just such as like having a databases where we store people home addresses, which is also linked like who you can vote for. And besides this, like just the ways you identify yourself. So it's not secure doing this. So if you just get a random passwords from the state by the actual like postal mail, but if you have a secure pin codes. So we have two of them, one to identify ourselves and the second pin code is to like, again, encrypt your vote or your signature. So this is something that we can call very secure. I'm definitely saying I'm a massive fan of iVerbing and, and I've been investigating the security background of this. And if I vote online, I can sleep peacefully knowing that it's not compromised. That's fantastic. I'm very grateful. Happy that we made it, Annette. It was fun. It went smooth and I learned a lot from you. So 
very happy that we could make it and I hope to see you around soon. Is there like anything to... else that you would like to add? I also just wanted to say a massive thank you from my side. Sorry, my voice has been a little weird because I have a runny nose. I came from Rome last week and it's it's a minus seven degrees here. So there is a massive change of hope. But always happy to share what Estonia has been, has been learning in this last 30 plus years of, of using technology in the public sector. And if there is any further questions from anybody, then you can easily reach out to me over Twitter or LinkedIn or any other social media platform so that we can help to shape the policies and, and, and make the use of technology also as a reality here in your country. Thank you so much, Annette. I hope uh, you don't freeze this winter. It's not so very cold, but we'll manage. Thank you everyone for being here. I see you next time and uh, hasta la vista. Ciao, ciao. Thank you. Thank you all. Here at the Mr. Rad Show, we provide first-hand information straight from the original source of knowledge. The personal opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect those of Mr. Rat. This show is brought to you by The Rat House, an unbiased, transparent, agendaless, independent media house. Our theme music is written and produced by Marco Mello.